Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. I'm Pastor Jody. I see a lot of new faces. Welcome. Uh, I'd love to get a chance to introduce myself to you personally after the service if I haven't already met you, so please come find me. I'm usually perched right over there. look forward to meeting you. Would you turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, please, for our sermon text, Acts chapter 2. This passage, of course, is the account of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God into the world in fullness, just as Jesus had promised as he was going away to the Father, as he was ascending, or just before his ascension, he promised to give a helper, to send a helper after him, to not leave his church or his disciples alone, but he would give them a helper. And this is the arrival of this helper on the scene, and it is a dramatic arrival, and it creates and establishes, gives birth to the Christian church, and it, and it inaugurates the church on its worldwide mission. This is like a launch pad for everything that follows in Scripture and continues to this day in history. We began to look at this chapter last week. We got through the first 18 verses or so, and we're going to pick up there again today. Would you turn to Acts 2, and we'll, we'll start reading today with verse 14 to the end. This is God's Word, and it is eternally true. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's Peter quoting the prophet Joel. Now Peter continues in his own words. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope because you will not abandon my soul to Hades nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David 
that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he, the Christ, was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this, which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he, David, himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, your word is tremendous and powerful and amazing. And this passage, no exception. And we pray, Father, that you would open up our minds to understand the scriptures and that your spirit would move among us and use my words and insights and thoughts to do his work among us and to convict us of sin and to move us to repent and to lead us to the, our Savior Jesus Christ more fully. I pray, Lord, if there are any here who do not know the Lord, that they would come to know you even today. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this passage, this chapter is divided into three parts, so you can make three parts out of it pretty easily. The first part is what we covered last Sunday, and that is where it's recounted the outpouring of the Holy Spirit with attending signs and miracles. 
there's a sudden violent wind that comes into the house, the upper room where they're staying. There's these tongues of fire that distribute themselves and alight themselves on each top of each head of the disciples. There's this blessing of prophetic utterance that is granted to them all. This formerly timid and fearful little group of disciples who are huddled together and hiding in the upper room are suddenly filled with a spirit of boldness. And they go out into the streets declaring the mighty deeds of God. And they do this in tongues which they did not know formerly, the languages that they did not know in the normal course of study. They were suddenly filled with this ability to speak in foreign tongues. So it's a double miracle, both the emboldening of these timid, fearful people and also this gift of tongues. The languages themselves signify that the gospel is for the nations. It's not just for the Jews, but it belongs to and and is to go out to the whole world, all the nations. Jews from all over the world are present at this time because it's a high feast day and they've come in from all, all the dispersed Jews have come back to town to celebrate this feast. And this, the, the commotion of it all, the cacophony of the declarations, it gathers quite a crowd of interested and amazed people. Some of them are saying, what is this? Explain to me what's going on. Others are mocking and they say, they're just filled with sweet wine. That's the first part that we looked at last week. And the second part is where Peter stands up and starts to give a defense for the fact that he defends the, the disciples against this charge of public intoxication. No, these men are not drunk as you suppose, he says in verse 15. This is just the third hour of the day. And Peter goes on to explain that this is just the fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy that the prophet Joel had predicted. He, in jo- using Joel's own words, Peter says, he foretold an outpouring of a spirit of prophecy on all mankind, not just on one man here and there to speak God's word, but generally, ubiquitously across the board on all mankind, on sons and daughters, on young and old, even on slaves, both male and female. Joel says, I, speaking for God, God says through Joel, I will pour forth my spirit on all flesh. They shall prophesy together. Peter gives this defense, an explanation for the miracle, the, the miracle that's, that's taking place before them here. And then he seamlessly starts, to, he turns this into a sermon. He just keeps on going from here. And he, he declares a powerful word of, of exhortation and rebuke um, upon this people. He speaks to this people in a mighty sermon. It's very powerful and piercing. And it's this sermon that we want to look at today and also the fruit that this sermon produces in the lives of his audience, which is the, which is the third part of this chapter. Well, let's look at Peter's sermon together. I said in the introductory message to this series that the book of Acts consists of at least 30% just the words of preaching. It is a record of the preaching of the apostles, if nothing else. It's the preaching itself which takes center stage and is more prominent even than the amazing miracles that, um, that show up on the scene that are produced through these same men. The miracles themselves often become um, occasions for preaching, where the apostles will say, now let me see this thing that just happened. I want to explain to you what it really means, and then they apply it to the people that, uh, that they're 
talking to. This here is the very first sermon, spirit-filled sermon preached in the history of the church, preached by Peter. And it is a model apostolic sermon, a model of their style of preaching. We're going to see this model again and again throughout the book. That model is to be very pointed and bold. This is their style of preaching. It's very pointed and bold. There's nothing fancy about it. It is not sophisticated. It's very plain and clear. You can't miss it. <laughs> and it's to the point and painfully, excruciatingly direct and personal. He's not preaching to, about people elsewhere. He's preaching to the people in front of him. Now, what is Peter's aim as he preaches to this assembled crowd here at, at this moment? His aim is to take the full moral weight and responsibility for participating in the murder of the Son of God and put it squarely on their shoulders and on their conscience. In the words of one commentator, Peter means to rouse and awaken their consciences into an agony of distress. He wants to they are in a predicament. They don't know it at the start of this sermon, but Peter means for them to understand their predicament perfectly well by the end. Their predicament is they have participated in the murder of the Son of God, their own Messiah. They've rejected him and killed him. And they, are going, they bear that guilt. And Peter wants to awaken them to this, to a sense, to, to a feeling of guilt, an awareness of it. Did Peter do this because he's cruel and he likes to just hurt people? <laughs> Make them suffer pain and agony? No. This is what's necessary in order to come to God in repentance. We must come to understand our sin and our guilt. Jesus is not just an addition to your otherwise already pretty great life. He is a cataclysmic healer. He comes and, and his law crushes you and brings you to nothing so that he, then you're in a fit state to receive his forgiveness. This is the way the gospel works. He is, God is merciful and ready to forgive but we cannot take hold of that forgiveness and the grace that is offered us in the gospel of Jesus Christ unless we have a sense, a profound sense of our need, of our guilt, of our hopelessness because there is only one way to come to the Father and that is by faith in Jesus Christ. And if you're trusting on your, in your own goodness, your own works on any level, then that is the degree to which you are not living by faith, and I'm not glorifying God. There is only one way for sinful men to glorify God, and that is through repentance, humbling ourselves. I'm guilty, as guilty as you say I am. I have nothing. Oh, help me, God. Peter wants to bring them to this state, and they are specifically, particularly guilty not indirectly, not metaphorically, not cosmically, but immediately and really guilty 
for having put to death the Son of God. This is Peter's goal. (laughs) Help them see this and face it and own it. So that then comes this cry of their hearts. What can we do? Kierkegaard. Heard of Kierkegaard, the philosopher? He says this about Christianity and about the gospel. It is the deepest wound that can be dealt to a person. It's designed to collide with everything on the most appalling scale. That is what it's intended to do. And Peter shows that that's what he intends to do as he preaches to the people, to collide with their, destroy and tear down their entire world so that they can live in reality by faith. Well, let's look at what Peter, how he, how he goes about doing this work. Where does he start? Well, he starts by quoting more of the prophet Joel than he needs to. This is my first question as I was looking at this text. Why on earth does he go on? He had what he needed to prove his point. Men, this miracle that you're seeing here, this is the fulfillment of the promised outpouring of the Spirit on all flesh, sons and daughters, old and young. I will pour out my Spirit on them and they shall prophesy. That gets us through verse 18. Why doesn't he stop there? He continues quoting the prophet Joel. He brings in this apocalyptic language. Look at it, verse 19. Joel says, I will grant wonders in the sky. This is speaking for God. I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Why is he bringing in this apocalyptic language? What is he trying to do? Is he trying to comfort them? It's all going to be okay, guys? No, this is unsettling language. This is apocalyptic, world-ending stuff. The, The people of Jerusalem, those who had been present 50 days prior to this moment, had seen some of these things happening around them and must be wondering, what does it all mean? What's going on? What have they seen? Well, as Jesus is hanging on the cross dying... We read in Luke 23 that darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, an unexplainable darkness, because the sun was obscured. And the veil of the temple, this mighty curtain, this grand curtain in the midst of the temple that divided the most holy place from the holy place, is torn in two, says Luke. And he adds that the earth shook. There was an earthquake, and the rocks were split open as Jesus is dying on the cross. Is God saying something through these things? He is. What is he saying? There, there, guys, it's going to be okay. No. He's communicating his wrath and anger, his disapproval on this present generation and nation of his people who have put the Son of God, his Son, to death. is, well, Luke cites Jesus as saying this about the guilt of this nation. This is a really amazing thing in in Luke 11. Jesus says that all the blood of all the prophets 
all the blood of all the prophets, all of God's spokesmen throughout history, all their blood, many of them had been killed by the fathers, by the fathers of this generation over, over the centuries. Many of God's prophets had been killed and mistreated and abused in awful ways. Not popular men, those who spoke for God to God's people. And Jesus said, all the blood of all the prophets from the blood of Abel, righteous Abel from the beginning, to the blood of Zechariah is going to be charged against this generation. Isn't that a horrible thing? (laughs) I'm going to hold this generation right here responsible for all of it. And that's because here is the son. If you're thinking of the parable, you know the parable of the landowner, the son. Surely they'll listen to my son. No, they kill the son too. And so they're going to be guilty and held accountable for all of it. This is the guilt that is on this generation that Peter is speaking to. And he wants them to start to feel the weight of this. So he brings in this imagery from Joel to unsettle them and unnerve them, to indicate God's anger and God's holiness. He doesn't want to leave them without all hope, though. And so he adds this last verse of Joel, verse 21, and it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I'm glad he added that. Where does Peter go next? Well, the rest of the sermon is Peter building this devastating case against this group of people that have assembled, against this, this generation of God's people. He wants them to see and feel that they're guilty of the worst crime imaginable, putting the Son of God, their own Messiah and Savior, to death. And that they're in a real predicament because this Jesus, remember he keeps using that phrase, this Jesus has come back to life. And he's more powerful than you thought he was. You knew he had performed miracles. They all knew about that. Peter acknowledges that and what he's saying here. But Peter wants them to know he's got the power over death. He's got the gift of the Holy Spirit. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He is far more powerful than you can possibly imagine. You're in a real predicament. Let's see how Peter builds his case. Look at verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man. He doesn't immediately call him the Christ, the Messiah. He saves that for right at the end. To throw, he throws that in there as, as the capstone of it all. But here he's just saying, this man, this man Jesus from Nazareth, a, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. They know, they knew. They knew Jesus had power. This was the talk of the town, surely. Jesus' miracles were notorious. It was attracting huge crowds of people, feeding 5,000 people at once from just a few simple elements, raising Lazarus from the dead, healing myriads of sick people, casting out demons. Jesus had 
Amazing power. They all knew it. And Peter says these were testaments added to his ministry to confirm to you that this man is from God, that he is filled with divine power, God working through him. You know this. This man, attested by God with all these miracles, this man, verse 23, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. That's a surprise that you didn't see coming if you're listening to Peter's message. You might expect him to have have said the next phrase, this man you nailed to a cross, but you wouldn't expect him to say, delivered over to you the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Well, what is he doing? Well, he is bringing in the sovereign power and authority of God into the equation, which is unnerving, (laughs) trying to humble them, wake them up. But also he's anticipating an objection that might be rising in them. Ah, Peter, I see where you're going with this. I think I understand. You're gonna try to build a case that this is the Messiah. We've heard that before. What is he doing here by saying, he's, he's heading this off at the pass by saying, this man you could not have touched. If, they, if the objection was, the objection would be, sorry, I lost my train of thought. The objection would be, if he's so special, how is he so easy to kill and put in the ground? Peter says, you couldn't have touched this man if God hadn't allowed you to and given you the authority to do that, if he hadn't predetermined that it would happen this way. And if you're listening as one of these listeners, if you're putting yourself in their position, you're listening to these words, that's very unsettling to hear because it implies that the very thing that you thought you were doing that's showing your power and showing the, and belittling the Son of God was God's intention all along. And that maybe you've actually been under his judgment for all, your whole life. And that this is an evidence of his displeasure that he would use you and intend you who thought you were one of his people to put his son to death. Very unsettling. Verse 24. But God raised him up. Oh, he, you nailed this man to a cross, verse 23, by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Not that everyone there had participated directly. Maybe some of them had been there present when they called out, we have no king but Caesar, crucify him. But probably not all of these hearers were there personally. But they had participated. There is national guilt that Peter is acknowledging here and is appropriate because as a people, this generation was guilty. Either if if they weren't directly personally involved, they were passive, passively involved. They said nothing, they did nothing, they were heedless. So they're guilty. This man was put to death by you at the hands of godless men, verse 24, but God raised him up again putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Who is this man? Impossible to be held in the power of death? Peter is is establishing that Jesus is God. Only God would have such power. Now he turns to an unimpeachable source from Israel's own history, 
the beloved King David. You can't go wrong with a Jew, quoting King David. He's, he's unimpeachable. The great king, the man after God's own heart, the sweet psalmist of Israel. So Peter turns to this part of God's word to bring out scriptural proofs for the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse 25, for David says of him, David says of him, this is what Jesus had taught them to do. Look back to the Old Testament scriptures for what it says about him. He, we covered this a couple of weeks ago. Jesus twice in Luke 24 demonstrates this hermeneutical practice of interpreting the Old Testament. Now here's Peter putting it into practice here. For David says of him, of the Christ, I saw the Lord always in my presence. This is Psalm 16. We're going to sing it at the end of the service, Psalm 16. He's at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope. And here's where, this is where Peter draws on here. Because you, Lord, will not abandon my soul to Hades, to the land of the dead. You will not abandon my soul there, nor allow your Holy One to go undergo decay. My body won't decay and become dust again. You have made known to me the way of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. This is a quote from Psalm 16. Now, what does Peter do? He says, brethren, David's dead. He's in the ground. His tomb is right over there. We all know where it is. He's not talking about himself. Verse 30, because he was a prophet and he knew, this is a quote from Psalm 132, because he knew God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his own descendants on his throne. That's because of, he was a prophet and he knew that. He looked ahead with his prophetic eye and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. That he, the Christ, would neither, was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus, who was raised from the dead, even as David himself said, this Jesus, God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. All of us here have seen him. We know. We've eaten dinner with him. He is alive. This Jesus is raised up again. We're all witnesses. Verse 33, therefore having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, Jesus, has poured forth this, this miracle which you're seeing here, this gift of tongues, this bold proclamation of truth, this is poured forth by Jesus from heaven, by his Spirit. For it was not David who ascended into heaven. He's not speaking of himself when he says this from Psalm 110. This is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, this, these three lines here. The Lord said to my Lord, this is David speaking, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. There's Jesus, says Peter, seated now at the right hand of the Father, waiting for God to crush his enemies and make them a footstool for his feet. Now, men of Israel, listen carefully. <laughs> You're the enemy. This is where he goes. 
Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, Messiah. That's where he works it in. This Jesus whom you crucified. This is gospel preaching. Right for the jugular. Right at the conscience. Very personal. Very uncomfortable. (laughs) There's not fancy illusions. There's not um, indirect statements. There's not... A lot of people today preaching make a habit of preaching about people and the problems out there in society or in Washington or in Hollywood. And that's, that's cheap. You can get a lot of people to agree with you and applaud you for saying those things. You can't get people to applaud you for saying, to pointing out their sin personally in this way. This is very risky business that Peter's engaged in here. He's got a crowd of 3,000 people at least They could easily turn on him if they didn't like what he is saying. Extremely bold preaching of the gospel. The gospel is called good news. But it's good news for sinners. Good news for sinners. In order to appreciate and appropriate the good news of the gospel, we must come under the conviction of our sin, the weight of the law and of our guilt. Remember John was the forerunner to Jesus and his ministry was to prepare the way for the Lord. And how did he go about preparing the way of the Lord? By preaching repentance. He preached repentance. There is the way of the Lord, the Lord's way, the way of the gospel is not prepared where there is not a convicting of sin. The Holy Spirit was poured out to convict the world of sin. It's the the first thing that he comes to do, to convict the world of sin. What makes the good news good? What problem does it answer? Is it a therapeutic problem, a surface level problem, or is it a catastrophic, deep level, ultimate problem and crisis? Is it a pat on the head, or is it a full pardon for somebody condemned to death? Don't despise the ministry of God's word when God blesses you with it. Don't despise it, either from the pulpit or kids. When your parents are trying to teach you the truths of scripture and apply them to your life, don't despise the ministry of God's word. It's it's easy to despise because it's intense. God describes his word with all these forceful images like a hammer and a fire and a sharp sword. Don't despise it when it comes and it performs its cutting, offensive operations on you because that is to bring life and to produce life, to bring you to the end of yourself so that you'll despair of your righteousness and seek Christ's, seek your life in Jesus Christ. I love the words of our communion liturgy. expresses it so beautifully at this point when it says, what is the worthiness that the Lord requires of you? What is the worthiness? How do you come to God? There's only one criteria of worthiness that the, that the gospel requires, and it's expressed beautifully in this passage. What is the criteria of worthiness? 
only that you be truly sorry for your sins and that you seek your whole joy and salvation in him who is worthy. That's the gospel. Don't despise the word of God or the preacher of God's word who seeks to bring you into a state fit to receive, who brings the hammer out and pounds you on the head with it, who pulls out the sword of the spirit and pokes you with it. Don't despise it. Don't stiffen your neck and be proud. Humble your hearts and receive life. What's the fruit of Peter's preaching? Responses to apostolic preachings uh, vary in the book of Acts. This is not the only response we see. Sometimes people do rise up and want to kill the preacher. We're going to see that a lot. But this day is a day of special blessing. This whole chapter is, a, is one big miracle. Everything about it. It's not just the outpouring of the Spirit and the gift of tongues. It's the, the bold preaching of Peter, and it is the humble response of these thousands who are listening. It's an incredible moment of revival. It's not the last moment of great revival in the history of the church, but this is the first one, and it's tremendous. We see their response in verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what can we do? How can we make this right? What hope, is, what hope do we have? Can you give us any hope? Get your act together, says Peter. Pray five Hail Marys, says Peter. Oh, when you pray, face a certain direction, says Peter. None of these. Those are cheap. I mean nothing. They do nothing. There's only one thing that Peter has to say, and it makes all the difference. It's the whole ball game. Repent. That's what you can do. Repent. Turn from your wicked ways. Repent and be baptized. Now, Peter has this habit of, of immediately going to the sign. <laughs> he does this in his, in his um, letter, too. He has this habit of, of talking about the things signified by the sign under the terms of the sign. Baptism is important. I love that we celebrated baptisms today. It's beautiful. What a wonderful picture of death and resurrection, of cleansing from sin. But it's just a picture, just an external picture. It's pointing to internal realities. And Peter is not saying, repent oh, and be baptized, do a work, an external rite. He's really saying, receive what's, what's given you in the gospel, which is cleansing from sin by faith in Jesus Christ, which is depicted in baptism, you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent. Turn from your wicked ways. Agree with God against yourselves. Join him in condemning yourself. 
say, you're right. All the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. I'm done. I don't have a leg to stand on. I'm hopeless. This is what they're saying. It's implied in their question. What can we do? Don't you hear their confession of sin and that? What can we do? What can we do? This is evidence of true revival. And this is always something that attends true revival. I want to I read to you something that Cyan Han, a Korean man in our pastor's college, a student in our pastor's college. Does everybody know Cyan? Probably not everybody does. He's a wonderful young man. When he heard we were preaching on Acts 2, he sent me an account, a couple of, of quotes from missionaries who were working in Korea at the time of the great Korean revivals in the early 1900s. And it makes your hair stand on end. Here's one by William Blair, a missionary to Korea in the early 1900s. Listen carefully. Then began a meeting, the like of which I had never seen before, nor wish to see again, unless in God's sight it is absolutely necessary. Every sin a human being can commit was publicly confessed that night. Pale and trembling with emotion, in agony of mind and body, guilty souls standing in the white light of their judgment saw themselves as God saw them. Their sins rose up in all their vileness till shame and grief and self-loathing took complete possession. Pride was driven out, the face of man forgotten. Looking up to heaven, to Jesus, whom they had betrayed, every sin is a betrayal of Jesus Christ. It's treason against him. Looking up to heaven at Jesus, who they had betrayed, they smote themselves and cried out with bitter wailing, Lord, Lord, cast us not away forever. Everything else was forgotten. Nothing else mattered. The scorn of men, the penalty of the law, even death itself seemed of small consequence if only God forgave. We may have other theories of desirability or undesirability of public confessions of sin, as the missionary, I have had mine. But I know now that when the Spirit of God falls upon guilty souls, there will be confession. And no power on earth can stop it. As pastors, we often say, that it is confessions of sin that is the greatest privilege of our life to listen to. And I don't just mean the stuff like I'm having trouble being patient with my wife. Pray for me. The the low-level sins. That's a real sin. But there's a lot of real, real, awful sin among us in our lives. We've heard it. And it's the most wonderful privilege that we have. It's also very difficult. Just like this missionary says, when God's spirit is working, there's confession of sin. Fear of man disappears. Only God is in the picture. 
And there's a pleading of the heart that says, is there grace for me? Can there be forgiveness for me? Does God work in your heart? Has he worked in your heart in this way? Is he working now in your heart this way? Come and talk to us. Talk to a trusted brother or sister. Confess your sins. This is a wonderful evidence of the Holy Spirit. If he's working and you don't resist him, confess your sins. It's good for you. And it opens up the the ability for us, for others, to say to you, look here in the word. (laughs) Your sins are forgiven through Jesus Christ who heals you. They asked Peter, is there anything we can do? And Peter's response to their question is very simple. Repent and be baptized. Listen, folks. Some of you might be thinking about really horrible sins that are on your conscience. If they can be forgiven for the murder of the Lord Jesus Christ... There's nothing you can't be forgiven for. Not a thing. It doesn't cheapen sin. I know this sounds too simple, right? (laughs) Repent and believe. It sounds too simple. It wasn't cheap for God. Jesus paid for that with his own blood out of his great love. So it's not cheap. It's free, but it's not cheap. Peter says this. He shows them the way forward, and he reiterates God's covenant promise to them, which must have been a real comfort to this group of Jews. God hasn't forgotten us. You do this, you repent, you receive the gift of the Spirit, you receive baptism and all that it signifies. I am a God to you and to your children after you. They knew this well. This was the covenant promise all the way back from Abraham. And here's God again reiterating it to them. We can reestablish this thing, guys, through the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll be a God to you and to your children after you, and even better, to the ends of the earth, to all those who are far off, I'm sending this promise out globally. We see in verse 40 that he continues to persuade. He goes on. This isn't the full account of the sermon. There's more words that Peter spends that day. He's doing a lot of work. He, with many more words, it says in verse 40, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Come out and be separate. That's what the church means. The word in church in Greek, ecclesia, means called out. Come out. Separate yourselves from this perverse generation and its guilt. Come under the blood of Jesus Christ and join us at his throne as among his people. Come out and be separate. Now what is the result of Peter's sermon? What does it produce? The most gorgeous stuff. Beautiful stuff. First of all, 3,000 
are added to the church. An incredible harvest of souls that day. And not just a, not a flash in the pan. This is not like a, a, this is not like a, a feverish emotional event that doesn't really change. It's just cathartic. And then they, everybody goes back to the way things were. It's total transformation. And it continues. It's fruit that remains. It says in verse... 42, they were continually devoting themselves. They kept on day by day, day after day, devoting themselves. This was a devoted people transformed by the Spirit of God into devoted people. What were they devoted to? Pastor Weeks mentioned this, exhorted all of the the people who had been baptized this morning to be faithful in reading their Bible, faithful in coming to the Lord's table, Faithful in coming to church. Faithful in prayer. Do you hear those things? That's what they were devoted to. Exactly. The apostles' teaching to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to communion, and to prayer. We haven't graduated beyond this. We're still, this is the stuff. This is the food that God has given us. This is what we call the means of grace. These are the devotions of the early church, and they're the same ones that we should have today. And then in verse 43, we see that there's a sense of awe and wonder that pervades the atmosphere in these days of the, of the church, of this newly established church. And the apostles are doing miracles and wonders, and they're just caught up in this, and the, the love that they share with, for one another, and the sweetness of fellowship. There's just a sense of awe that pervades this community. And a sweet spirit of fellowship, hospitality, generosity, and joy that pervades also. And in the last verse, we see that the Lord was adding to their number daily, day by day, those who were being saved. I want to make one point in connecting the fruit to the sermon. First of all, they're connected. This is fruit that comes from that kind of preaching. This is fruit that we see described that comes from that kind of boldness, that kind of directness, that kind of wielding of the sword of the Spirit. You don't get the fruit without the sermon. Okay? I say this because we've all taken offense personally at the preaching (laughs) of this church. The way we normally take offense of it is somebody, we notice that somebody has come in that's a guest. Maybe we invited them. And then the preacher is making them uncomfortable. And so we feel uncomfortable and we're, we take offense. Maybe they walk out and say they're never coming back. You know what those people do typically want to affirm though and are eager to affirm? It was a, I love the people. Sweet fellowship. I mean, I really envy the fellowship of your church. I wish we had that at our church. We've heard this so many times. Where does that come from? In Acts 2, it's very clear that that comes from that kind of boldness in preaching, that kind of speaking to the conscience. So please, if God blesses us with that kind of preaching, don't take offense at it. Don't take offense. Bless God for it. It produces good things. 
And there's a necessary connection between that measure of boldness and going for it with people and the, and the humility that's created in hearts that are transformed and, and, and brought into a state of, well, you know, it's, like, it's as simple as this. It's like we're all, we come to the end of ourselves, we see again, I'm a sinner, and suddenly we're free to just love each other, you know? Oh, you're a sinner too? <laughs> Me too. I love you. That's really what it is. It takes a hammer, it takes a fire, and it takes a sword to produce humility in pieces of work like us. And that's what God's word is meant to do, and that's what preachers are meant to try and bring about. There's some very famous, there's a very famous preacher, very famous preacher, who says, I try not to intrude on the Holy Spirit's turf. I try, I try to leave room for him over here. I just, you know, I present the Bible, which means he doesn't really apply the scriptures. He's really good at, at propounding, expounding, the, expositing the scriptures, but he doesn't do the work of applying. And he justifies that by saying, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. And I try to leave room for him. Peter wouldn't have no comprehension of that. None. He's perfectly identified with the message of the Holy Spirit very personally and, and applicable to the people he's speaking. So if God blesses us with that kind of preaching, let's have faith for it. Let's receive it with thanks. It's not easy. We all know that. Let's have faith for God to change us the hard way. There is no easy way. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, for its truth, for its glory, for its power. Forgive us for our sins. Have mercy on us, Lord. Humble our hearts before you. Bless the ministry of your word among us, both corporately, privately, in our homes, in our small groups. I pray, Lord, that we would be people who love to have the scriptures applied to us, have faith to have our sins pointed out, and the humility in our hearts to bring that to you in repentance and faith. Change us, Lord. Work among us and bless your people. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.